Hey everyone, before we get into this episode with Gino Finelli talking about New York State cannabis, I just wanted to give a little bit of a primer. Uh, this was recorded a bit ago. This was recorded in October. Uh, usually there's no reason to talk about when these are recorded, but this one does matter a bit. Um, this is coming out after my episode uh, with Surface and our nephew Ernest, where I mentioned that things are a little bit out of date, and this is one of those times. So I just wanted to give everybody a heads up for what to expect during this episode. So we were talking about this uh, before any of the dispensaries had opened in Rochester. Um, since then, some of the lawsuits that were mentioned have cleared, and dispensaries have started to open. So just a quick uh, primer on that. Um, since then, the uh, Herbal IQ uh, Grower Showcase has closed in Rochester, uh, at least for the time being, and two recreational dispensaries are now open. Uh, that is the Rise Dispensary and MJ Dispensary in um, Henrietta, uh, Rise being more of a chain, MJ being purely local. Uh, uh, locally owned and everything like that. So, um, and then at the beginning, I do mention that I was hoping to make this a series. Uh, I still do hope to do some of that in the future. I don't think it's to be quite as uh, cleaned up as episode, 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 back to back to back to back. But um, still interested in learning more about the industry from top to bottom. So that is still my intent. It might take a while, but. Um, just to let everybody know when they go in, I was very optimistic. I thought this was going to go really fast and really easy, but I've uh, been doing a lot of prep work for Lunchador, and now that we're in our second week, just wanted to let everybody know ahead of time what to expect. Um, I still think the discussion and the emotions and the information we were talking about then were valid at the moment, so I wanted to leave everything in as it was. This is not edited. This is not polished to... You remove stuff that's a little dated at this point. I wanted to leave it as is for you. So let's dive into the episode and I'll give it to the intro. I'm Chris Lindstrom and this is the Food About Town podcast. Rochester? Well, why Rochester? Chris Lindstrom was a hoot. He was just so much fun. He never stopped talking. <laughs> I mean, it was great. Party down? Yes! Take it from me, an inveterate snob. <laughs> That's it! Stinks! It stinks! It stinks! Then we don't need any characters around to give the joint atmosphere, is that clear? Because I'm a pro. That's what pros do. I'm a professional. Look it up in the book. What do you say? Enough. But now, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back! And we are back with another episode of the Food About Town podcast. And I think what we're endeavoring on here is a bit of a mission. So I don't usually do a whole series on things. I don't do multiple episodes on the same topic. But something's been fascinating me recently in New York State and our region. And I think there's an opportunity to tell some interesting stories with, uh, with this and that topic is cannabis in New York State. Uh, we haven't touched on it on the show other than, you know, stories here and there of fun, but we haven't really dove into it. And I think it's a really interesting time to do that because of the state of where it is in New York State. And I wanted to bring on somebody who knows way more about this than I do to help kick this off. Guest, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. My name's, my name's Gino Finelli. I'm an investigative journalist with WXXI News. Uh, 
I mainly write about government and policing and things of that nature, but I also write about uh, cannabis and beer. And uh, I, I, I guess um, as far as cannabis writing goes, I started back in, let's say, 2017, 2018, when it was kind of like a gl- uh, little flicker of hope that legalization was going to happen. It was and 2017? 2017. Well, even further back than that, I mean, the original bill was, I believe, 2012 with the MRTA, wow. Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, was first floated by uh, Andrew Stewart-Cousins, and um, it really, at the time, I mean, it had no hope of ever moving forward, but... Times changed, and there was different iterations of the bill that had come forward, uh, particularly um, in the early 2020s, 2020, 2021, and then we saw the actual legalization happen, and the passage of a very, very progressive uh, legalization bill in March of 2021, and... yeah, I mean that's that's that makes a ton of sense. So I want to take a step back, and so you talked a little bit about you know what you do at City. Um, any uh, any big articles that you want people to go look at uh, if uh, they're uh, going to look at your work over on City right now? Sure, I, I do a lot of stuff. Uh, by the time this airs, I have a series that's coming out on uh, uh, cold case homicides. Um, oh, awesome! Where we went through the stories of multiple victims and uh, uh, was a quite a long endeavor between me and my photographer to actually get it done. But um, we're really excited about that series. It should be coming out at the time we're recording probably about a few days from now, but uh, very proud of the work that we put into that. And I, I think just overall, all, all of the work that um, I've done over the years um, at WXI at city has been, uh, it's been a really great opportunity to do some really interesting uh, government and police reporting. So um, I encourage you to Google my name. There's some cool stories out there. Absolutely. So you're so you've been uh, a journalist for a pretty long time at this about point. About a decade, right? yeah. About a decade, and um, you started hitting the writing when when you know the legalization things started popping up. But when did you become a you know a discerning consumer uh, of cannabis? Because this you know the thing is about it is there there's so many stories around this stuff that are there's a lot of legal talk and a lot of everything else, but in the end, all of this turns into, there's a lot of personal journeys. There's a lot of all this stuff. And when, you know, like when I talk about spirits, when we talk about beer, when we talk about other stuff, there's, you know, we can do all the legal discussion and then you can write, you know, critical reviews. But when, when did it turn to something where you were discerning consumer versus just a kid? (laughs) Um, well, I mean, well, the first time I smoked weed, um, I, I was 12. I was, oh, I was real young. Um, and, you know, through my teen years, I mean, I grew up, uh, I was a punk kid, a skater kind of dude. So, um, you know, that was always around. Uh, when I really started to get interested in it, it was probably my early 20s. Um, I, oh, I always loved cannabis, but I had some friends that were getting into growing. And uh, I was really getting into, like, the whole... Um, for lack of a better term, viticulture to it. The, sure. The, uh, the, the science and the technique. And uh, I was never a big grower, but I was a, a, a consumer. And I, you know, started to learn the differences between the two. And, you know, one of the things you learn from hanging out with people that are really involved in the industry, the, the so-called legacy market, as uh, people say now, um, what, now that weed is legal, is that people are really passionate about it. Yeah. Um, they, they really, really just are so excited to show, like, because it is a, a time-intensive process. There is a lot of 
intimate care that goes into taking care of a good plant and getting a good product out of it, much like a home brewer, much like um, a home winemaker or something like that. It's a very similar thing, even more hands-on though. So I, I, I really was fascinated by that, that you had people that were doing something that was, was and is still illegal, but were so uh, craft about it. Yeah. And so into the idea of uh, creating a product that like is the best quality. Um, they just want to show it off like someone baking a really good pie. Um, yeah. That's cool to me. That 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 was always uh, kind of the shift from uh, you know I love weed because it gets me high to I love weed because it's I've got a fascinating history to it. Um, it's a really cool and intricate process to getting it, and it also gets you high. So that's just like a bonus to it, but. Um, that, that really, I would say probably my early twenties when I really started getting into that, that interest of the, the real hands-on effort of that goes into it and started while I I started like wanted to write about legalization more and uh, some of the processes behind it, because what I saw was the potential for a real cultural and economic powerhouse, which a lot of people that are going into, uh, or looking at legal cannabis, see it as now. It's not just the money that came off it, which is huge too for the state of New York, but it is a cultural thing. It is very, it's a, it's a powerful mechanism of things, much like food and drink that brings people together. And it brings out artistry in people um, to do things that are creative and new and uh, exciting. So yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways, it's similar to why I got into craft beer. Um, the art of it, the, the skill and craftsmanship, and just, I enjoy the product. Yeah, well, I think that's that's a big part of it. And, you know, there's there's so many different swaths of people that are uh, consuming and enjoying it now. Um, and also, I think more visibly, you know, I think there are often these crowds that were already enjoying it, but now it's more visible because of, because of legalization and people are more open about it in many ways. Um, and not, not the, not the um, hardcore you know, not the, the dedicated growers, the dedicated consumers, the dedicated people who have been in and around the um, industry such that it was for, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, but with legalization, I think it's come visibility in a way and getting more people into it in a way that's approachable. And that's like, for example, that's how I got into it was, I never, I'd never tried it before. It, I went to a legal dispensary uh, in Seattle. Uh, that was the first time I'd ever tried it. Was at a legal dispensary because I wanted that control. I wanted the understanding of the quality of the products that were coming to me, and I didn't want to assume that somebody knew what they were doing without, uh, without the without the the guardrails. And for me, that that was what started me into that side of things was being able to go to a legal dispensary. And having that, you know, then, you know, driving through other states, you know, that was in Seattle was one of the first places. And then driving through other states when I was traveling for other things. And now in New York, you know, I go to the one store in our area that's open. Um, but for me, like, hey, it's, yes, it's it's fun. It's great. But, you know, there's so many different levels of consumers from like, hey, mostly I'm using it to make sure I can go to sleep cleanly at night. And it's so much better for me so far than anything else I've ever tried. Like I sleep great every night. I, I think you're uh, actually a far more common case study than uh, a lot of people would think in the, in the world of cannabis right now. I, yeah. I, one of the things that's fascinating is 
the change in the past 15 years of the taboo of, of cannabis. Yeah. Um, I mean, we went from it's, and, and trust me, this rhetoric is still out there, but it's a gateway drug. It's going to lead to hardcore heroin addiction or, or it's going to, if a kid smokes it, they're going to end up out on the streets to now it's like a, a cute quirky thing that soccer moms are taking gummies at their, you know, get togethers after. Right. I mean, th- that is a, it's an astonishing uh, turn of uh, cultural perception in that amount of time. Well, and I think, you know, obviously if we're going to be frank and honest for a second, it's obviously steeped in, <laughs> steeped in racism. A hundred percent. So, I mean, you know, the, the rhetoric was hugely steeped in racism all the way back into the, you know, what, into the 1920s? Yeah, and... Uh, Probably even before that. Yeah, but a little bit before that. I mean, it was uh, it, it, the first waves of Mexican migration um, past uh, uh, the, what's it called, the, the annexation of Texas. Uh, mm-hmm. That was always the, the, the something that became ubiquitous with uh, Mexican farm workers was, uh, was cannabis, and it was used very strongly as a tool to make anti-immigration rhetoric, um, and then in the 1920s um, was used very strongly against black people, jazz musicians, um, people that were artists that, just like today, uh, used cannabis. But So, yes, the, the laws and policies and cultural perceptions of cannabis have always been rooted in severe xenophobia and racism. Um, and interesting, I mean, we can get into this more, but New York has attempted to try to fix some of that or to undo some of that through their legalization effort, but we're not there. I mean, we're not yeah. even close. Well, I think let's, yeah, let's, let's do our soft pivot into, um, I, I'd like to go into what the current state of New York cannabis laws. So I want to go, it's basically getting back to basics, like the current state of legalization in New York state. So, I'm going to give you my understanding for a second, and then you tell me how wrong I am. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. So this is this is off the dome. I'm, I really tried to keep this as somebody who's you know an interested consumer, um, and I wanted to. Hey, these are the things I think are going on. So my understanding right now is that yes, um, we have legal we have legal consumption. There are some restrictions on, you know, consumption in public in different spaces, just like cigarette smoking, um, that there's also, you know, opportunities to open uh, retail outlets for uh, for recreational purchase. Uh, but we're struggling in that aspect. And we're going to go into that in detail um, that you can grow a very small amount yourself as an individual and that there are licenses available for growers and processors and everything like that. Did I capture the general gist of it? More or less, yeah. Uh, th- there's, I, I think if you go back to the start of it, I, I, I think the real important piece of it is the actual impetus behind the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act to begin with. And let's just put aside that, yes, it is an economic thing. The state wants their tax money. 100%. We all know that, but... The legislators that had drafted the bill, um, and, you know, I, I work with state legislators quite often. I, I know that there is always a virtuous kind of um, ethos to why they want to put a bill into place. And in this case, it was undoing past wrongs from criminalization. So New York, when I say it has a very progressive law, it was a matter of 
one, the licenses that were supposed to be put out uh, for the first dispensaries were supposed to go to people that were either from communities of color, uh, communities that were disproportionately impacted by criminalization, or had a previous conviction for uh, cannabis possession or sale, uh, which was a huge thing that many states have tried to do. And New York had the most, I think, good faith effort to try to do it. Um, I, I think that's my understanding as well, having done at least some research into how other states laid it out, that there was a lot of, there were words around it, but there wasn't any, there wasn't any teeth to the, uh, to the end application of those laws that forced it to happen. There's a fantastic article from the Chicago Tribune um, from 2021, I believe, that was after their legalization, and Illinois was very similar in that they... Um, had set out this racial justice pathway for legalization. And the article went through every major marijuana company that was operating um, in Illinois at that time. And not one of them had even one person of color, even in their boards of leadership. Oh my God. Not only were they not black owned, there was not even a black person who had a stake in any of it. So this was this was the, the fear in New York um, that this was going to be the same thing that happened, but it has not been uh, an easy process, and it, frankly, it's been a horribly failed process actually rolling out those uh, um, those policies. Part of the reason being that when you put forward regulations and you put forward policy without actually putting in the regulatory framework beforehand, you create two issues. One, you can't actually launch the businesses that are supposed to operate off of those uh, policy changes. And two, you're opening yourself up for lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit, which is exactly what happened here. And which is the reason that even today, Rochester doesn't even have an actual dispensary. Herbal IQ, um, which operates on East Avenue, is a grower showcase, which has a technical loophole way that the state actually created uh, to sell cannabis directly from growers and uh, processors to the public. But the, as far as actual dispensaries opening, they've been hamstrung by court injunctions. And most of those injunctions have been people either from out of state or people that did not previously have uh, cannabis convictions as the law tried to, you know, tailor the openings to that. Um, they sued saying that this is unconstitutional. You, you can't, you can't uh, prioritize um, by race. You can't prioritize by previous conviction. You can't prioritize by whether or not we even live in New York. Well, um, and, that's, and that's, you know, obviously with a lot of the Supreme Court rulings of the last year, I mean, there's a lot of friendly, there's a lot of friendly things to, uh, let's say, we can say anti-discrimination is a very loose, uh, a very loose capture of what, uh, the rulings in the Supreme Court were because uh, they're ostensibly laid out as that because, uh, you know, with uh, you know, affirmative action things and uh, uh, school uh, school uh, prioritization of students uh, was ruled on in the last year, uh, obviously taking away a lot of those protections for those rules. Um, there's, you know, there's likelihood that those, if that went past New York State, that that's the way that would go as well is, you know, with those lawsuits, and it turns out, 
I'm just going to throw something out there as a non-expert in the field. It turns out when billions of dollars are involved that people want in right away. Everyone wants a piece of the pie and they want it immediately. And the, the, the real, the, the shame of it is, uh, by all logic, I think most reasonable people can recognize the harm that criminalization of marijuana has done to particularly to black communities in New York over the years. I mean, um, the, the studies by the Department of Health prior to uh, uh, legalization here found that uh, black people were 16 times more likely to be uh, charged with a cannabis offense than uh, white, white people, despite the fact that consumption happens at the same rate. Um, black people don't smoke any more weed than white people. White people don't smoke any more weed than black people. It's the same, but one is getting criminalized 16 times more. So I'm we, surprised. Yeah, shocker, <laughs> right? So we can, we can all recognize that that is clearly a historical issue that we've had over the years. Yeah. But also when it comes to the legal position of it and the legal arguments, well, we can't start discriminating based on race now, even though we've done that the other way for centuries. Yeah. So it is a very unfair system and it is based on I don't I personally don't feel that most of the people, not all of them, but most of the people that have filed cases and gotten injunctions from uh the judges as they tried to open their own shops in New York had the intention of making a more equitable system. Yeah, the 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 question the question I had without, you know, I didn't read all the lawsuits. I read some of the read some of the basics, but you know, it seemed like just I want in first because first means more money is really what it comes down to. And that that's the truth, too. The places that open first, the places that establish themselves are going to be, this, you know, likely the staples of the community and being in first as either a big producer or a, a large corporation, which I'm, I know corporations have sued as well, not mm-hmm. just not just smaller, uh, smaller ones. So this is, you know, it's a money play 100%. But I know it's it's not in good faith to say, hey, we're being excluded. I think there's some that are, but I think the majority is, hey, we just want the money. Yeah, and I, I is that surprising no, in any way, shape, or form? Not. I mean, it, it's it's just the reality of when you have uh, this is a big money business. New York is a big state with a lot of people in it, and there is an economic powerhouse on a global scale that's centered here. Of course, weed is going to be a big thing that's going to be very profitable. It's There's a very high likelihood that when in 10, 15 years, when most of the the, the world starts following along with uh, uh, legalization and criminalization starts becoming a thing of the past, which is an inevitability in Europe, where is the center for cannabis commerce going to be? California or New York? Yeah. That's it, just the reality of it, just like everything else. And then we see companies like Constellation Brands putting $4.4 billion into just a single company, a canopy out of Canada, which has not shown any return on investment. But if you're willing to put up that kind of money and you're that kind of corporation, for anyone to think that anyone's just going into this with, uh, you know, we're going to fix the past wrongs, we're going to make everything good again, and, you know, we're not concerned about the money. No, it's a a fantasy. This is a, a money thing, and it is... A real, it, it, it's it's a paradox. How do you undo years of harm and oppression, mostly to economically disenfranchised groups um, based on their skin color, and also do that in a new multi-billion dollar industry? Yeah, and it's like when a company like 
constellation, you know, can drop a billion dollars on, you know, ballast point and just like, ah, eh, yeah, we'll just throw it away as a write-off a few years later, basically. One of the worst business decisions of all time. <laughs> but that, that, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, but, but that's the kind of thing a company like that can do. It's one of the, you know, biggest food and bev companies, you know, in the world. And they are, you know, they're, that's the kind of money that's flowing around this is, yeah, of course they're spending the money on it. Um, so I, I want to pivot back to some of the, some of the specifics about where the laws are now. Um, and I want to talk about those, uh, what is referred to as the card licenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's uh, acronym conditional adult use retail dispensary licenses, uh, because I, that's, you know, the subject we're talking about in specifics. Um, and that has rolled out. Like many people have these temporary licenses, but we have no openings because of the legal issues in our region. A few places have opened in New York State, but like it's on the scale of like 20 at this point. Last I checked, there was 24 operating across the state, and five of them were upstate. Right. Um, yeah, it's the, the conditional adult use retail dispensary licenses. Um, when we're talking about. Uh, uh, in shorthand, we call them equity licenses. Yeah. Um, and they were the licenses meant to be given out to people that were either from a community that was formerly disproportionately impacted by criminalization, a community of color, or they had a previous conviction or some combination of, of those. And they wanted to open their their own dispensary. They basically were first in line um, and they were able to be the first ones to enter into the legal market. And those people got with these court cases and everything that have happened over the past two years, they got fucked over Yeah, pretty, pretty hard. They put, they, they paid the money to get the licenses. They were told they had their first fee in the first foot in the door. And then years go on where they're not able to actually operate a business. And most of them are supposed to be in order to keep that license are supposed to have an actual storefront. So how do you afford that? You have a storefront where you can't sell anything and you just have to keep paying rent on that until the courts clear everything up? Well, and that's, that's I mean, and you also think like functionally, I mean, the intent is to enfranchise disenfranchised people from either the laws or other things. And by forcing them into this, you're essentially saying, oh, we know you might not have a ton of upfront money, but we're going to help you along. And then we're taking away that upfront money that you had because you have to maintain it. And it's, it just seems like highly problematic. And I've, um, what, one of the, one of the shows we're going to do, we're definitely going to talk to some of those people as well. So, uh, I'm really interested to hear the stories direct from them because we can tell it, but they're living it every day. And I'm really, it's a shame. It's a really awful thing that's happened to those people. Yeah. Um, and, um, I'm going to choose my words, right? Because I, uh, when we talk about herbal IQ, um, the growers showcase that. So, so the the injunctions that have happened in the courts have blocked the card licensees from opening recreational dispensaries. The growers showcase provision was essentially a loophole that was created by the state. So, people that were sitting on a ton of cannabis were able to put it to market before it was unsellable. And I'd say for for the lack of a better way of saying it, I'll I'm going to make an analogy. It's almost like a farmer's market for this thing, but yes. not quite. Pre- like Pretty much, yeah. And that's kind of the loophole idea is it operates as a farmer's market, except yeah. for it's a small producer it's market. It's not a dispensary. No. It's a showcase. Certainly uh, not. Yeah, but, I mean, it is a dispensary. It's a dispensary. Yeah, 100%. 
But what really was um, something that I struggled with, and I, I like the people that run Herbal IQ. I've worked with them. I think they're good people. But are they any of the people that would have received a card license? No. I mean, Mike Doolin, who runs in the Pines, um, one of the cannabis companies that sells other growers showcase, came from uh, Constellation. He was their cannabis guy for years and then left to start his own farm. Good for him. I wish him all the best. He has good product, but it doesn't sit right to some degree that this was the intention of the state. And then this is the first one that's legally allowed to sell here. That's a conflict that I've had to like consider as I've been reporting on this stuff. And it's something that we've talked about quite a bit. And it's, it, it, it's just, it's unfortunate that things panned out that way. And they panned out in the way that I think a lot of more cynical people and, and, I, and someone including myself saw that was going to happen the whole time. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to dive into that for a second. Then we're going we're gonna to take our break after that. Is even though it makes so much sense that it's gone this way, it's still kind of crushing. I mean, as somebody who's more much more invested in this than I am, right? Because this is... This is new to me, but we've been eagerly awaiting the opportunity to support these new, you know, new stores that are providing equity to these people. And we, we desperately want to support those places and we've been unable to do it, but we're, we're new. We're not, we're not invested in the same way. Um, it kind of has to be, kind of has to be tough to balance. I mean, this is your profession, right? You're balancing journalism with your own of course, stuff yeah. all the time, but this is a lot. It is. And I, I you know, I, I made a lot of connections in this industry through, through reporting before. I mean, a lot of people that are a part of the legacy market. And I think of um, a guy named Jeff Medford who runs, um, he, he's a local grower, fantastic local grower. And we've had some very good conversations about, um, you know, whether he wants to enter the legal market or how he could. And after the amount of time that's passed, he says, you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but to the conversations we've had in the past were basically, why would I at this point? They've never supported me in the years before this. And now I'm supposed to be the one at the table. And they're basically saying, well, you got to wait. We can't get this right. We can't get that that right. The hell with it. Why, why, why would I even want to be a part of it? And that's that's a shame. This is a, this is a person who has expertise, is smart, um, very, very thoughtful about what he does. And he's saying, and also someone who would fit the con- conditional adult use licenses to begin with, he's saying that, like, this isn't a system that's been built for me. Yeah. So th- that's... It, it's a really tough thing to see and not feel for them. And um, these are good people that are really trying to do a good thing with something that for a long time has made them criminals. And we are just in a position where whether by apathy, poor legislate, poor legislation, poor writing, poor regulatory processes, or just sheerly lack of consideration of what the results of the track we were on were going to do as a state have left them in the dust. Yeah. And that is a shame. It's just, it's just simply shameful. And uh, if I was part of the state um, legislative body that created this bill, I would be 
probably a little bit ashamed of how it's played out right now. And I know a lot of them are, so it's it's tough, and it's tough to watch. Yeah, and that's, that's you know, eventually I'd love to, you know, hear from people who are involved in that as well. Um, so I think we're going to do, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to finish our talk on some of the laws and then talk about what actually does exist now that is, you know, doing, their people are doing great work that haven't had their chance to get stuff out there. So we're going to take our break and we'll be right back. Hello, listeners. This is Richard B. Cologne reminding you all to check out the Behind the Glass Gallery podcast hosted by myself and Kwaje Donnell. Every month, we interview the latest First Friday featured gallery artists and dive deep into their passion, drive, and motivation beyond what they display on our gallery walls each month in downtown Rochester, New York. So please, if you haven't yet, subscribe and give us a listen. Also, don't forget to check out our monthly artist receptions every first Friday of the month from 6 to 8 p.m. 240 East Main Street at the Mercantile on Main. Hoping to see you all behind the glass. Welcome to the world of punches and popcorn, where we dive into the bone-breaking and kung-fu-kicking world of martial arts cinema. Join us on the path as we explore a new movie every episode, discussing the history, fighting styles, science, and more from a broad range of fight films. Everything from Bruce Lee to John claude Van Damme to John Wick. There's plenty of room in our temple of couch potato style. So listen in and subscribe to Punches and Popcorn on your favorite podcast app. And we're back with the second half of our conversation with Gino Finelli from City Magazine and WXXI. Um, and I want to finish off real quick. I don't want to do laws the whole time, but it's a lot of legal stuff going on right now. So I want to I want to touch on laws and the effects real quick. Um, and we, we are going to dive into this in the rest of the series as well. Um, I don't want to really go into the permanent licenses. I was talking to somebody about that because that's starting to happen with the growers and the producers where you have to transition to permanent licenses. So I, we'll talk about that another time. Um, I kind of want to talk about, you know, the effects of the split right now. So the split of legal, recreational, medical, and gray area. And gray area is a nice way of saying not legal yes. at this point. But I, I think gray area is actually a fair way of talking about it at this point. Um there's a huge split of what is available to consumers and what is available in the legal marketplace at this point. Like it's, you know, a 98% to 2% split if, if that. Oh yeah. yeah. So um, what I wanted to also, I wanted to touch on at least, there is still a medical marketplace here in Rochester there and is. in New York state. Yes. So that still exists, and those stores still exist, functioning as medical providers to those with documented things or semi-documented things. Yeah, and medical's in an interesting place right now because the state has, I mean, this is just not their focus anymore. No. they, they, I don't want to say they don't care about it, but it is just not something that they are prioritizing. Um, there are, I, I have, um, several friends that have their recreational marijuana or sorry, uh, medical marijuana licenses that, you know, they're, they're just, they don't really see the benefit of it that much anymore of going to the medical dispensary. Um, it can be pricey. Um, it is pretty strict on what kind of products you can get out of it. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, it is not hard to find good weed in Rochester right now. Right. Um, it's easier than it's ever been by a wide margin, but 
it's I, I am sure there are people that are dedicated to going to their medical dispensary and they will keep going there no matter what. But I think they're a very small um, portion of cannabis consumers overall, a very small portion. That's fair. I just wanted to touch on it because there's still this split. But the big split is in um, gray area retail locations, mm-hmm. uh, which are uh, pervasive, I'd say, is the uh, best way of saying that at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not quite as much as, uh, you know, vape shops and, uh, other things that popped up, but it's not that far behind. It, it's really funny. Um, back in, um, 2021, um, shortly after legalization, I had, uh, there was a, a gray market. They were pretty uncommon at the time. There were not that many gray market weed shops at all. Um, and I had stumbled upon one. And it was the one where you buy a $65 t-shirt and they give you an eighth of weed. I remember when you wrote about that. Yeah. yeah. Which was super, it was a super funny story. Um, I um, talked to the owner and a bunch of lawyers and everyone was just like, this is really stupid, but this is where it's headed anyway. (laughs) Um, But uh, after that story came out, um, within a couple weeks, they were everywhere oh yeah and i know i I know it's like oh you're taking credit for the gray market like i actually talked to some owners like yeah we read this story and then like we just thought like you know we can just sell out of our vape shop i'm like yeah i wrote that story yeah so that was pretty cool that was really entertaining to to see happen but this has happened in every state that's legalized and and had a slow roll out of their dispensaries uh dc has had this forever because they have very weird laws where there are no dispensaries but, you know, you can sell stickers and you, you know, for a price and then you yeah, get the weed yeah, yeah. with it. And so it's the same thing in New York and they are everywhere. If you have a hard time finding one, I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, they're, they're everywhere. I mean, we had like, so uh, <laughs> while we were setting up for one of our uh, nominate events, uh, one of the one of the places we were buying food from. Like we walked into the place and there was a counter on the side. Yeah. Like there's a there was a counter on the side and it was um obviously not naming the place for the sake of the place at this point. But um you know, there was a you know, there was a counter inside and they're they're selling other stuff and then there was a counter in there just like selling, you know, edibles at three hundred milligrams. Oh yeah. You know, the kind of stuff's like I, I can't believe you're selling this to people to consume. Um, but you know, it was like, it was just, it was a counter inside this place we bought food from. And, you know, I've seen in other places as well. And I know there's a lot of places that are CBD stores and everything else. And I'm sure that a lot of them, if not the majority are selling that at this point. Of course. Yeah. And they, and I don't want to like, uh, you know, finger wag at them. No. Um, because I, I, uh, as we've been discussing the previous half hour, I mean, this has been a, a really bad rollout by the state for legal cannabis, and people find a way to survive. However, I would say, I, I wrote a story back in April that it really explored the nuances of the gray market weed shops, and there are two distinct varieties of them. There are ones that are selling from local growers. Um, uh, there's They are doing their best to sell products that they know are of high quality. They might be a little bit more pricey, but they're, you know, they're, they're trying to do something and sell good product. Um, although albeit illegally, um, 
I have no problem with those ones. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't want to name the stores because I can get them in trouble, but you know, Six Point Canna is a, a cannabis company here that I'm a big supporter of. They're good people, and there are a couple of shops that stock their stuff, and they're proud to say, like, we carry Six Point Cannabis, and um, that that's a good thing. Even if it's not playing in the legal market that we all expected, it is a new iteration of the legacy market that's existed before. But the other side of the coin are people that are shipping in cannabis from California or Oregon or Washington. Usually, bud, that was not good enough to go to market there. There was something wrong with it. And they sell it here for dirt cheap. They're undercutting the prices of the local growers. And for most consumers... um, and I'm guilty of it too. I bought that cheap weed before because, you know, it's $50 for an eighth. What, what's the worst that could happen? And it's fine most of the time. Yeah. But you think about it as we want a healthy ecosystem to survive here of people that are based here creating a good product here. How are they going to do that when you're shipping in weed that is a sixth of their price and being able to do it in mass quantities? Oh, I'm um, sure. And sell it at every gas station on every corner of the city, which is more or less what's happening right now. And that is the part where I'm like, okay, that's not good. That's not, that's not good for the long-term health of the cannabis ecosystem here. Yeah. And that is where the office of cannabis management has been stepping in and they've been doing uh, so-called inspections. They're not raids. Their inspections. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I did want to talk about that because that that is something that has started over the last what, like three months or so. I would say about four or five months at the at the earliest, but yeah, yeah. Um, in earnest, probably July was when they really start kicking off here. So, and it really it is just saying, hey, you're selling, you don't have a license. Uh, how about you stop doing that and we take all of your product? Yeah, and then and that's and we're talking sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of product. Um. Yeah, and I, I've talked to the state about this, and they're like, you're like, yeah, I mean, their concerns are pretty in line with my concerns uh, about, you know, what this means for the future of the industry here and how this undercuts other the people that are actually trying to have a local bi- industry here. But, you know, at the same time, too, it's the state created this problem, and now they're punishing people that are taking advantage of the issue. And that that's the part that's... Uh, I don't know. It doesn't sit right sometimes. Uh, One of my favorite stories of recently was uh, I I had a piece that I was working on and maybe we'll continue working on, but about the actual cost of the raids on uh, the people that were owning these dispensaries. So I found one that was inspected by the uh, cannabis control board and the OCM and had a, a large amount of their product taken. So like, all right, well, let's go see if they're still in business. That's about two weeks later. Yeah. So I go to the place and uh, knock on the door. I'm like, hey, uh, uh, do, do you got anything right now? He's like, well, what do you want? And uh, I just like, I want a pre-roll. Just like one joint. Yeah. Like, so they uh, <laughs> uh, walked me out of the building, down a little alleyway to a Jeep that was parked in the parking lot. Right. They open it up. And they have their whole display case in the back. Oh, <laughs> like, so now they're not selling on the premises anymore. <laughs> so, so it, 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 And because of the way that the state has rolled everything out and because of the problems that it's had, we're stuck with stupid, goofy bullshit like that. Right. And we're going to be stuck with it until they figure this out. And at one hand, it's funny. 
Like sure. it, it's definitely funny. I am a, a fan of the absurdity of life and, uh, you know, it creating situations like that. But also it's pathetic. Like this is it where is. we've ended up. Well, I, I think because when you're talking about like when did the laws pass, like we were talking, it was 2021, right? 21, yeah. So 21, we're talking two full years at this point, and we have zero of these licenses open in our region, not alone in my neighborhood. Like I was expecting one in my neighborhood within a year, and now we have we have zero in the region. I think one just opened like two days ago. Yep. In and the Finger Lakes? Yeah, yeah. There's one in Newark. There's one in Batavia. There, there's Yeah, and there's one in I thought it's like near Seneca Lake. Um, it just opened like two days ago or something. Um, but, you know, it, it's just after all that time, I'm still buying weed in this, in, in, on that day, the same exact way I did when I was 16 years old, following a sketchy dude down an alleyway to his car right. and buying it out of the back of it. I mean, again, it's a, the state had made a situation that it's embarrassing. And it, it shouldn't have played out this way. Yeah. So um, I want to finish off with um, large corporations. Mm. So we dabbled in large corporations at the in the first half of our conversation. But there is an inevitability that at some point, larger corporations, and I'll use one, for example, that I have bought from in Illinois, uh, Rise mm-hmm. Cannabis, right? Um, pretty well-established Brand, and they I'd run say, the medical dispensaries here as well. Which they did, obviously, to get in early as soon as they could on the legal side, which makes sense from their perspective. Uh, but they're, they have dozens of stores everywhere. I, I bought a lot from them when I was traveling through Illinois. Um, I would have bought from them had they been here if they were the only game in town, happily. But like at some point, we are going to get the influx of larger corporate stores like them uh, coming into Rochester, selling on the market. And the question I have at this point, and I, I don't think this is a fair question for me to ask you, but the real question is, are we going to have an established enough independent market by the time they come in where they don't just blow everybody else out of the water? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I th- And I, I think this has been the concern the entire time that that's the way it was going to play out. But, you know, I, I think there's two sides to the coin. We do whether it's in the legal market or not right now, we do have a very established cannabis marketplace in the Finger Lakes in New York. There are established players that are selling good product legally and illegally um, that will be a force to contend with um, for any large corporation, whether it be Canopy, whether it be Columbia Care, whether it be Rise, to actually set up a marketplace here and dominate it. So I don't know if it'll be dominating as much as they will be competitors, um, they will be here and they will be um, playing a role in the marketplace here. But if I mean, if in 2021, yeah. um, everyone who wanted a card license was able to open up a dispensary right. and begin operating, and by this point in time, we're fully established. And now Columbia Care is, we're past the card license point and Columbia Care is able to enter the market and do whatever they want with recreational. Would they just crush everyone out of business anyway? Maybe. Maybe, I, uh, maybe. It, it seems less likely if they have more chance to establish themselves. <laughs> That's the way I'm thinking about it is like, you know, if before chain restaurants came to your city, you had a vibrant, you know, independent restaurant scene that was you know, bringing a variety of different things and different cultures and backgrounds, high end, low end, medium end, something for everybody. And then McDonald's shows up. Yeah, they're going to take some business, but people see it differently because they have this vibrant independent restaurant scene. 
And I, it seems to me that it's the same way. If we had a vibrant, independent scene that's, you know, we do, but that is that falls within the category of legal operations and everything else. If that was there, that legal backbone was there, it seems to me that we have a much better chance of, hey, this is what we're known for. We're known for quality. We're known for variety. We're known for diversity. That, that, that's, my, that's my opinion at this point, but it's I, I'm coming to this as somebody who's bigger into, you know, Small beer producers and small wine well, and producers. Well, I do think about that, too. Like, I mean, Budweiser sells beer all around here, but people still buy the kind. Right. Um, and I'll, I'll keep buying the kind. But, you know, there's always that part of it. People do want to support local. People do. It's going to be a craft boutique marketplace for a lot of the small growers here. And the people that are going to support them are people that really care about the quality of their product and everything. And, you know, the optimist in me says that, there's room at the table for everyone. It's a very, very big industry. Yeah. But I also know that large corporations that stand to, to gain, you know, the estimated, what, $15 billion valuation of the industry. Per year. Per year, yes. Right, we're not talking lifetime. Yeah, we're, talking I, we're, we're talking insane amounts of money here. Yeah. Um, do they have uh, a necessity to stamp out the small competition or can they survive and flourish just in the, the share of the market they would have naturally? I, I mean, it could go either way. Well, the question is, are they? The question is, are they Genesee or are they InBev? That's that is always the question, right? And when it comes to Columbia Care, when it comes to Rise, I would say they're more like InBev. Uh, Genesee, you know, very big supporter of the local craft industry here, and I would love if Genesee entered into the cannabis marketplace. And you know, they actually might. There's some a possibility of that. I wouldn't be shy, but like think of a place that you know, we can all defend, right? You might not love everything they do, but we can defend them despite the fact that they're owned by a huge multinational conglomerate. Oh yeah, they are Fifco USA, but I would still die for Jenny. Right. But they also treat the local market good. They're, they have unionized workers. They're paying their tradesmen. Well, uh, their tradespeople Well, apologies. Um, and this is something that matters and we take pride in it because they've taken pride in being here. Um, and that matters a lot to me. Um, and that, you know, yeah, if I'm going to buy a macro, that's what we're buying, right? It's something I can support and I can defend. Well, and I think the tough pill to swallow for everyone in the industry is that the macro weed producers, the macro growers, the macro distributors, macro processors, they are coming no matter what. No doubt. There's no question about that. But what role they play in the marketplace, the state has to have a say in it to some degree. But also, it's a matter of the consumer. It's a matter of what you are willing to buy. And um, I, I would encourage people, if they want a really good locally-based industry, just like with beer, just like with wine, just like with spirit, buy from your local grower. Support with your dollars. Yeah. Buy what is coming out. It might cost a little more. It's probably a lot better. But you're supporting what's locally here. It, uh, there, there is this kind of... Uh, when we have conversations like this, there's natural inclination to go like, well, it's just waves crashing on a beach. We have no control over whether or not they dominate the market or not. But we do. Yeah. We do have a say. And it doesn't have to be that Columbia Care or Rise enters the market here and they crush every little grower out of the market. If you buy from the local grower and don't buy from the macro processor or the macro grower, they're going to survive. It's yeah. that simple. It's simple economics. 
And I mean, it's going to be tough. It's not uh, a gold rush. People are not going to be making millions of dollars out of the door selling off of their farm. But there is room for real success and opportunity in this industry for people that have long not had that opportunity for success, that opportunity for generational wealth. So we're at the precipice of something very good. Yeah. And it's taken us a long time to get there, unfortunately. But we have a real opportunity here. And, yeah, again, the point being, if you want it to actually happen, buy from people here that are growing here, that are processing here, that are part of your community and not part of the billion-dollar ecosystem. Yeah, so that's that's kind of what I want to finish with is let's talk about the infrastructure that already exists in New York State. We've touched on it a little bit here and there. But let's talk about some of the other infrastructure that exists here, Um, one being the growers. Um, So a lot of growers started growing with legal licenses. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they're all still conditional licenses until the final licenses get hit. I'll talk about that with the growers when we have them on. But there are significant grow operations that are legally operating in New York State that have not been able to sell a significant amount of product. Yeah, and it's a shame because – yeah, they, they were given the, the the green light, grow as much as you want, cultivate as much as you want. I mean, there was limitations, but like mass scale industrial kind of processing or cultivation. And um, yeah, some of them have been sitting on that bud for well over a year now. And we're not talking about like 10 grand of stuff. We're talking, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars of product. Real uh, for, money. And it's like you talked about, it is, um, it's a lot of work to grow a quality product. Um, I grew up in the greenhouse business. That's what I, you know, I spent my childhood selling plants and Christmas trees and everything like that. And I know that when you take the time to do things the right way, you get a better product. And the product's good. I've, I've had a lot of it. I mean, it's it's good product. Um, but yeah, those guys, again, they got screwed. And they've been forced to really wait to participate in this legal market. And then it's the processors too. I mean. Yeah, let's talk about the processors. So, so when we're talking about growers, there this isn't like one or two people. We have we have significant amount of operations that have started in New York State. Do you do you have a rough number that have been legally? Um, and I know I'm I'm throwing this off the dome. I, it's I I think it's I think it's like 180, Which, but it might be more than that. But I, that's but that's wild. That's a, <coughs> considering we have 24 stores and we have a hundred. We have well over a hundred legal grow operations. That's um a little bit of a disconnect. Yeah, and the processors too. I mean, the processors there are creating- Yeah, let's talk about processors. Um, there is a, um, a great processor uh, locally called No Wave. Um, legally licensed, they produce gummies. Uh, really excited to talk to them in the the in that part of this uh, series. They're well. awesome. They're really good people, and they put real money into their, uh, their facility. And if you go there right now and look at their warehouse of how much product they're sitting on, I mean, it is mind-boggling because they have such strict compliance they have to follow through, and they've got 24 dispensaries to sell their product to. <laughs> so how much are, how much could one dispensary realistically take in gummies? They can't. This is a, a facility that can make 100,000 gummies a day. Right, how many could one dispensary take? We're talking about a real industrialized, industrialized $7 million facility. I oh, mean, my God. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I really need to say it because my, uh, my day job is in automation. I don't know if we ever talked about this. So that's actually my day job is in I automation. I didn't know that. So I, I was a project manager for a decade um, in automation, and now I work on other sides of the business. But, like, 
that side of it, I would love to learn about because like, that's my nerdery. I'm an engineer by background and like that kind of nerdery and processing and the science and the technology. Um, that's the other thing, like the processors, this isn't like fly by night. This isn't somebody throwing a pot on their, on their stove no, with some is. butter and infusing, you know, and, uh, infusing it. Oh man. Decarboxylating. Yeah. Oh, look at right. me remembering yeah. words off the top of my head. Um, so, but like, it's not like, not like you're in college and you're throwing stuff into a brownie. This is highly chemistry technical. We're talking high level chemistry and laboratory conditions. They have just for an example. I mean, they have an ethanol centrifuge uh, extraction de- device. Basically, what that means is they dump a ton of raw biomass weed into it, dump a ton of ethanol on top of it, and spin it around real fast until all the oils extract out of it. The walls surrounding that centrifuge had to be blast-proof in case it explodes. The walls alone cost a quarter million dollars. Oh, my God. Just to house the centrifuge system. Wow. That's the, that's the level we're talking about here. Well, and that's the thing because, like, <coughs> you know, at the unregulated level of stripping weed for – or stripping cannabis for – uh, for THC and other associated compounds, um, they're not using ethanol. They're using high-level solvents that are nasty as shit. Yeah, this is pure ethanol. It couldn't be any cleaner. And uh, but most people that might have not heard of No Wave might know about weed water. That's one of their flagship products. It's weed water. It's got wa- it's water with weed in it. Yeah, they have a system that essentially strips tap water down to chemical H2O, yeah. which they then redistribute into a certain mineral balance, creating basically their own form of mineral, mineral water from scratch. It's, it's, it's like, what's the point of that? It's to seriously just the method of we're going overboard and spending as much possible to get the purest product we possibly can. It's also quality control um, <laughs> because like, Shockingly enough, um, as you know, I'm a nerd. Um, I have a full carbonated water system over there. One of the containers over there is a mineral mix that I can mix to new, to our area tap water to make it mimic the uh, mineral density of my favorite mineral water. So picture that like on a hundred times scale. And oh that, yeah, that's huge. what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, and it's and I, I love I love that kind of dedication to quality, and it, it matters to me because that that matters that hey, you're not stripping using like industrial solvents. It's not that ethanol isn't a solvent. It is. But it's a solvent that we know and we understand. It's not butane. Right. And that's that's one of the main ones we'll use, which is um, not human consumable. No. Well, it is, but not you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of things are human consumable. You just might die. <laughs> um, so processors and then, you know, the infrastructure that's starting to go is, you know, the storefronts of the stores that are not open. And we have lots of them here in our area mm-hmm. that have stores that are ready to open at the drop of a hat as soon as they're able to do so. Yeah, they're ready to go. They're licensed. They're The only thing stopping them right now are the court injunctions. And that when that will end, it's probably at least the end of the year. I was going to say, uh, let's. I, I did want to d- touch on that. I know there's no answer. There's I'm no, not trying no to get way an to predict it because by the time, because we had one before the current one. Right. And that got cleared up, and within two months, it was another one already. So this might not be the end, anyways. Because so. everybody was ramping up as soon as that first one hit, and they were and ready to open. Right, at, right out again. You just can't pulled do the rug it. right out from them. And then, yeah, it, it, and it's, it is a nightmare yeah. for anyone who's actually trying to enter this market right now. But. 
You know, one of the conversations that I've had a lot of times with people in the industry is in five years, none of this will matter. Yeah. Um, but the what's happening right now will decide what things look like for the foreseeable future. Mm. So this is a nightmare right now. It will be fixed. It will get better. But what's going to look like until we get to the better place? We don't know. And so it's, it's, it's really this kind of we're, we're in this purgatory right now Yeah. of we know there's going to be an end to it. But when is it coming and what is it going to look like? So we're going to finish out. But <laughs> I have I have a question that I think I want to ask everybody. Are you positive about the way that cannabis in New York State is going? No. No, I, I think the state royally screwed up. Um, they made a bunch of terrible, terrible decisions very early on. And it could have all been avoided yeah. with just better policy writing. So, no, I'm extremely disappointed in the way the state has rolled things out. And no uh, disrespect to the people that I, I work with at the OCM because there's a lot of them that I, I really like. I think they're good people, and I think they're trying. It's not their fault. It's the fault of Andrew Cuomo really hoping that he could stay in office for a little bit longer and forcing this through when the policy was not ready to go. Um, it's the fault of the lawmakers who did not create a regulatory framework before it went through. And it's the fault of <sighs> greed. Yeah. It's the fault of greed that we've ended up in the situation that we're in right now. So I'm not optimistic about the near future of what it's going to look like. But I am optimistic about the long future, the long term. Yeah. Um, two, three, four, five years out, this is all going to work out. But I am just very disappointed in how it's rolled out so far. It's made for some good stories, but it is, it's sad. Like, it, it has hurt people, and it, it it's unfair. Yeah. All right. I think we're going to do, we're going to wrap up for today. Um, Gino might rejoin us for one of the future episodes sure. uh, talking to different sides of this. So uh, the way I'm envisioning this is we're going to do like a five or six part series, talking to different parts of the industry, getting their stories from them personally, uh, really interested in this. I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. Um, but uh, Gino, where can people find your work and how can they reach out to you if they've uh, things they need to talk to you about? Sure. So um, you can find my work at uh, news.org uh, rockcitymag.org. Um, my Twitter is, uh, at Gino Finale, G-I-N-O-F-A-N-E-L-L-I. Uh, all of my contact info is very easy to find on all those platforms. My cell number, my email, please. You have any thoughts, ideas, or just want to yell at me, please reach out. I've, I'm always, <laughs> always hope I'm um, up for it. There's always a first time for somebody to yell at you, Gino. Um, <laughs> It wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> uh, so if you want to follow me, and since you're already listening to this, I don't know you, that you do, uh, you can hit me, uh, throw me on Twitter, uh, Instagram, and uh, Facebook. Food About Town Podcast on Instagram is the home for all the news about the podcast. Uh, follow Lunchador Podcast for all the news about the Lunchador Podcast Network, uh, officially launching hopefully later this year. Um, and... That's going to close out this episode of the Food About Town podcast. Hopefully we'll see you next time and have a great day.